to Love in the Time of Kasmosos, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Kasmosos blog about the signs, art, and pop culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Later in this, our very first episode, Niels will be interviewing one of the Paleosphere's most beloved artists, Joshua Knuper, who will be talking about his new graphic novel, Europosaurus, Life on Jurassic Islands. Before that, following the blog's Vintage Dinosaur Art Strand, we'll have a short discussion on the book, The Evolution and Ecology of the Dinosaurs, featuring the illustrations of Giovanni Caselli. But first, news from the Paleosphere. Who would like to come in first? Well, we all had uh, our first uh, experience with uh, Tet ZoomCon, which is like TetsuCon except on Zoom. And uh, all three of us attended that. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I think a lot of our readers are probably very familiar with TetsuCon itself. And um, I dare say quite a good many of them were actually able to attend this time, thanks to it being virtual. Uh, what about you, Mark? Yeah, I know that uh, quite a number of people were able to attend for the first time this year because it was online and included quite a few well-known artists and figures. You know, David Krintz was there and uh, God knows who else. And um, yeah, it, it, was, it was good fun. I mean, I was getting progressively more drunk over the course of the evening, which didn't help. Uh, I don't rather, you know, it did help. It did help <laughs> greatly in my enjoyment of it. Um, so yeah, it did mean that when it came to the Paleo workshop, um, I was with Louise Ray. And unfortunately, because I'd already had a few beers, I just turned into this massive Louise fanboy. Um, and we rambled on and on and, uh, yeah, waxed, waxed philosophical about patty art, which is great. Um, I can't remember much of it, but I'm sure it was, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was very memorable for, uh, for everyone who was there. <laughs> I'm, sure you, I'm sure Louis enjoyed you being a fanboy very much, Mark. <laughs> I don't think there was going to be any objection there. No, you know, he's, he's seriously a lovely guy. I mean, when he, when he popped up on the screen, I was beside myself with joy it was wonderful like la louis you're there <laughs> and i immediately went and grabbed all my copies of my louis ray illustrated books from the shelf I was like look look um you know as if i never spoken to him before well for my part i mean i i tweeted about it um, because i had um gabriel Lugetto uh, leading my workshop and it was all i could do not to fangirl like an idiot um so, but I think I kept my composure very well, I have to say. Excellent. Well done. I was with uh, Steve White, so uh, I did have a bit of a moment like, uh, oh yeah, Dinosaurs Magazine represents... And he said, stop mentioning that bloody Orbis part work, and all the other stuff I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, Mark, that you would have been just as much a fanboy if you were in Steve's um, session with all your copies. Well, yeah. Um, fortunately, I haven't got that much of his art lying around here, apart from the one that's stuck on my wall in the other room. Um, that would have been in the other room. But I would, yeah, I would love to be in any of those sessions. I mean, it would have been fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there were some great talks too, of course. Yes. And the big cat one. Um, but there were some great talks. <laughs> well, I think my favorites were Rebecca's talk on the Neanderthals and, uh, yeah. um, and RJ's talk. But I think, I think everyone was absolutely enamored of RJ's talk. Oh, yeah. I was. Yeah, he, he's a rock star, isn't he? Everybody was just going crazy on the chat. Ah, yes. So, yeah. Uh, Congratulations to Darren, to uh, John, to uh, Sharon Hill, who uh, all uh, organized this. It went really, really well, considering yes. it was a Zoom event with over 300 people attending. Uh, it basically went off without a hitch in the technical department. And, you know, that's a really impressive feat. So just for that alone, but for the rest as well, uh, very well done. 
Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I found it incredible it all worked. Now, uh, a week or two ago, there was a publication about uh, a group of animals called Lagerpetids, or Lagerpetids, I never know how to pronounce it. Uh, the study was done by S. Kala et al. And it's about these, these little Triassic uh, archosaurs. They're called Lagerpetids, and they look superficially like lizards, uh, but they've got very long legs. And uh, Escala et al. found these to be uh, closely related to pterosaurs. So we have an outgroup to the pterosaur group now. So we kind of know slightly better where those pterosaurs come from and how they uh, how they evolve. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, so yeah, the, as you say, sister clade to pterosaurs, which means that they are probably something close to what the ancestors of pterosaurs would have been like. So now there's at least some idea of where they, you know, they don't just appear out of nowhere like bats do. Those damn bats <laughs> just uh, oh yeah coming out the walls but yeah absolutely but... the, the issue is with the um early history of both groups that because they're so small and they're so easily smashed to pieces that uh the the fossil record is really poor so yeah it's it's yeah also in in the cases of both bats and pterosaurs you have to uh you have to sort of imagine that they probably evolved quite fast uh well they certainly appear to have done yeah <laughs> i mean so they just sort of seem to... We still don't really know how one learns to fly. We don't know. We basically know jack squat about how, how pterosaurs <laughs> did it. We know jack squat about how bats did it. Bats just appear fo fully formed in the in the fossil records, ready to go. Ready to tick to the skies. And uh, birds we know a little bit more about, thanks to all those feathered dinosaurs. Um, you know, I, I mean, originally you had sort of ground up or tree down and then it's turned more into well the feathers evolved first for purely insulation or were they there you know or for display or were they evolving trying to evolve towards not literally obviously but evolving <laughs> towards flight and that was the you know they originally evolved for gliding purposes and um and there's still all kinds of uh hoo-ha going on i mean um even there even when the fossil record is is better um so never mind how as you say with groups that just appear to come out of nowhere like bats what 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 do the ancestors of bats look like? Flying mice. Yeah. So yeah, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of mysteries to uncover, but uh, we have uh, one more piece of the puzzle to fill in. And I was I was ready to uh, to see on Twitter and on Facebook and on social media uh, all these paleo artists all wanting to restore these lager peated uh, archosaurs, but uh, they were upstaged by an even more spectacular find but also a more uh, uh, yes. controversial one that's right yes this is the brazilian one it's called uh Ubira Jara. Jara. it's by smith et al it's a, a compsognathus looking thing and it has some of the feathering preserved and uh, it's looking very interesting it's got some uh, it's got some of those really weird really spectacular uh feathers coming out of the shoulders Yes, um, I, be I believe they're uh, keratinous epaulets, so not quite feathers, um, and uh, rigid rather than um, uh, flexible, I think. They're certainly coming out of somewhere. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I know that uh, Louis Ray has restored it with the um, epaulets coming out of a few different spots on the body. I mean, um, it's... I think we can look forward to a few articles arguing about the taphonomy of the specimen and how crushed it is, and... Um, you know whether or not they were coming out of one particular spot or whether they could be restored in a few different places but then 
that'd be interesting interesting discussion to have and then there's the whole controversy around where the um, specimen came from which uh best not delve into for legal reasons oh, yes of course <laughs> yes well um i think i think we can keep it short uh i think we probably agree that it should be repatriated to brazil yes okay <laughs> that's, 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 well, don't sue anyone, please. We're, no, please, we're please don't sue us. <laughs> please don't sue us. But but we do we do think it should be repatriated. Uh, that's all we have to say about that. <laughs> Moving on rapidly. Moving on. Should should we talk about Spinosaurus? Spinosaurus. Yeah, because uh, again, everyone's sick of that. But basically. It's it's our first uh, episode, and we're already we're already sick of talking about Spinosaurus. <laughs> yeah, and next we'll talk about T Rex and then Jurassic Park. So, with Spinosaurus, obviously, the thing is that um, Scott Hartman has pointed out that maybe that M shaped sail is just um, well, he, he refers to it as a paleo art meme rather than anything that's based on real solid evidence. So there's no real reason he uh, Scott Hartman argues to necessarily give it that M-shaped sail. You could give it all kinds of different shapes. You could give it the classic rounded sail. You could give it a crazy higgledy-piggledy mountain range sail. Um, you know, all kinds of things. Um, because the, well, the what is known of it is so lacking. Um, material is lacking. So uh, it's scanty that, yeah, it can be restored in a number of ways. And the way it was restored in what uh, by Ibrahim et al. is um, a possibility. But it's just one of several. So I guess his main argument is um, don't feel compelled to restore it in the exact way that as it was restored in the paper. Um, but yeah, uh, and the artists have just been basically copying that ad nauseum without putting much thought into it. But you know, I mean, what what, what were your thoughts on the, on that one? Well. Um... I'm, I, th- I think, I think uh, Scott is very good at at uh, showing how he comes to the conclusions that he comes to, and showing the science that goes into his restorations, and uh, showing why he makes the choices that he makes. I agree. And I think that's what makes his work so good, and that's what makes him so influential in the paleo art sphere. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with his take that uh, the M-shaped sail is necessarily a paleo art meme. But that's probably a, a matter of how you define paleo art meme. Because when I think of a paleo art meme, I think of stuff like the um, the ornithalestes grabbing the bird, right? The 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 cases where artists are copying other artists. Yes. And I think that's not necessarily what happened with the M-shaped still. I think what happened was um, the paleo artists were using the most up-to-date skeletal as their reference material, and that was the Ibrahim at Al. Uh, skeletal with the M-shaped sail. Yes. So that's probably why the M-shaped sail uh, was showing up everywhere. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a case of uh, artists deferring to what they see as their primary source. Well, the primary source almost literally, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, the main source of expertise, the most authoritative source. So they're referring to that. Not they're not necessarily all referring to one another, but rather to that. I mean, you see a lot of still quite a bit of variety in these different reconstructions, even in the toy world. <laughs> you see, um, <laughs> well, it's like the, the Popeye one looks quite different from the Safari one, which looks different from um, the Schleich one, what have you. The Schleich one probably looks terrible. Um, but they, some of them have crocodilian like scales and some of them don't. And this, um, these Papa one is a bit more of a fishy sort of looking tail. 
but they all have that M-shaped sail, and I think they're just all using the same source, as you say. Yeah, and that's that's why I think it is a very good thing that we have the new uh, Scott Hartman skeletal now. So uh, there will be a little bit more variety in how we see Spinosaurus being restored. Yes. Well, um, on the note of Spinosaurus reconstructions, and I did mention Caselli's in the evolution ecology of the dinosaurs. Let's talk about the evolution ecology of the dinosaurs, which was... Um, written by Beverly Halstead and originally published in 1975. Um, I have an edition from 76, but as far as I can tell, it's basically the same. Um, and Niels, you have one from 75, which, but it's the Dutch version. It seems to be from 75, yeah. Now, I have to say, this is a book that is very, very close to my heart. I had this when I was a kid, and uh, you know, it really uh, sparked a lot of my uh, imagination, along with... Uh, with Dinosaurs magazine, which I was also reading at the time. This was one of the few very old, old dinosaur books that I had as a kid. So it's very uh, nostalgic to me. I mean, it wasn't that old at the time. <laughs> it was basically, it was, it, was, it was 20 years old at the time. Um, it's not that old. I mean, you think about things that are 20 years old now, Walking with Dinosaurs well, is 20 years like old. like a lot of time when you're five. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it does, that's true. Um, you know, it would have seemed very old to me at the time, I think. Um, Obviously, I, I never, I didn't come up on it until I was an adult, um, you know, probably around 2012, which is when I originally reviewed it for the Mark One of the blog. Um, it's definitely one of the seminal books of, well, popular dinosaur books of the 1970s. Um, absolutely spectacular illustrations, um, beautiful illustrations, page after page of them, um, and a pretty comprehensive text as well from Halstead. Halstead, uh, of course, was quite a famous uh, character. <laughs> Sadly, no longer yeah. with us. But uh, yeah, he was um, this very well known. Halstead was not necessarily that conservative. He wasn't. He was basically just reflecting the orthodoxy of yeah, the time. Yeah, he does kind of have that uh, that that uh, reputation of being one of the naysayers. Because by this time, uh, Robert Bucker was already out there with his dinosaur heresies. I don't think the book was out yet, but um, he was yeah, already out the, there I mean, claiming that dinosaurs were uh, warm-blooded and active and related to birds. And uh, Beverly Halstead really has one of those uh, has a reputation of being one of the naysayers, right? One of the villains in this story, if you will. <laughs> one of the people popping their monocles and going, think, "This is I outrageous." Villain is, villain is going a bit far, um, but he, oh, he's just reflecting the orthodoxy here. I mean, mostly he, he doesn't go into any of the, you know, the so crazy new um, dinosaur Renaissance stuff that much because it was a bit crazy and new and um, not that well established. No, not that scientifically well proven even to be fair i mean there wasn't yeah, absolutely back was making all kinds of wild claims about galloping sauropods and uh, the like that really you know probably don't stand up now but he was also basically right, right. i mean <laughs> yeah but, but but you need those people right you, you need the skeptics you need those conservatives because that they're part of how science works yeah so they, they it was raining back a bit and going oh hang on a second i mean he does these aren't properly old school um depictions of dinosaurs in here they are basically cold-blooded no, reptilian um, but you've got uh, a description of big, big theropods as active, walking horizontally with their tails in the air. Um, you know, sauropods. Sauropods are in a weird halfway house in this book. Um, so his sauropods are basically kind of following in water. Although that isn't really the way that Caselli illustrates them in the book. Um, no, I think I think Caselli is more progressive than Halstead in his reconstructions. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. In some respects, yeah. I mean. You have uh, a description of T-Rex as um, basically quite slow and literally waddling, taking these slow steps and uh, 
Halsey doesn't describe it as being a scavenger. He does, he does say it's a predator, but it's using its it's waddling after things slowly, waddling after equally slow prey, and then attacking them with its feet because apparently its teeth are uh, too blade-like and weak or something. I don't know. It was a funny idea going around at the time. It doesn't make any sense. And also, also the little hands were used as toothpicks. Yeah, toothpicks. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. But also to get itself up because otherwise it would have just pushed itself along the ground like a big kind of like I don't know salamander or something. Yeah. But so yeah, it had to stick the arms in to push itself up off the ground. Uh, it's another thing we know. <laughs> doesn't really like. It has these huge legs, these huge thighs. Why can't it just push up? Doesn't make any sense. Whatever. <laughs> the point was, Caselli illustrates it basically. Uh, basically like like a trot. I mean, it appears to have two feet clear of the ground. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah. It's a great perspective on it as well because you're sort of because you're sort of almost from a human eye view looking up at this thing. Um, it looks really huge. Uh, and you've got that great flock of birds going by in the background to give it a nice little sense of perspective. You know, it looks positively it's towering. A, it's a beautiful restoration, I have to say. Yeah, it's great. And um, another thing worth mentioning about the slightly more progressive element of it for the time is that the dinosaurs all look very muscular. A famous illustration, um, again, absolutely beautiful, on um, page 104 of my edition, and I imagine probably yours as well, um, the 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 late Cretaceous uh, spread. Yeah, basically late Cretaceous Hell Creek kind of scene um, where you've got Triceratops, Torosaurus, Ornithomimus, um, Alamosaurus, Alamos, Alamosaurus um, has a quite funky looking head, which I quite enjoy. What? Uh, but, but anyway, the, the oh no, I was just going to say that what struck me about the Alamosaurus um, illustration is it's it's four feet, um, which is actually, I mean, I. I don't know how well understood it was at the time, but the the absence of all but one claw um, on the Alamosaurus hand, yeah, I thought it yeah. seems to me at least uh, enormously progressive, but I don't know. Um, it's definitely paying attention to, um, I mean, ironically, probably more than it does on on things like um, Brachiosaurus, which appears elsewhere, and, uh, and Jocreosaurus and a few others, and Camarasaurus. I mean, there you've got, you seem to tend to have an erroneous number of claws, but uh, for some reason, yeah, there's only the really the one big one, which is interesting. And then there's the T-Rex. Yeah, the T-Rex. I was, was going to get to a minute ago. It's what the uh, kids of today would describe as thick with two Cs. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 30s now. I can't get rid of this stuff. <laughs> Hello, fellow children. Yes. It does have... Um, <laughs> I mean, because T-Rex did obviously have huge thighs and it had huge um, cordofemoralis and tail musculature. So I wonder if, it, yeah, if it would have been that uh, large and behind. I mean, it almost seems fair enough. It doesn't have particularly widely spaced um, hips in this, I don't think. It's maybe a little bit, but yeah, it's a, it's just a perspective you don't normally see. <laughs> a lot of why it appears that way is just a matter of perspective and foreshortening, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. Um, and it's not, as I said, it's not perspective you usually see, which makes it very interesting. Absolutely. I know it it's, um, has quite carefully detailed scaly skin as well so that's good have we properly discussed the way uh, giovanni caselli draws spinosaurus because i have never seen a spinosaurus that looks like this that is true um i sort of have there are other books which uh, other reconstructions from as i said the 20th century that basically depict it as a quadruped or very low slung which it turns out is actually quite accurate. <laughs> um, yeah, after all, we're like all laughing at the side a few years ago. Ha ha ha! Ludicrous idea of Spinosaurus having stumpy legs, like walking on its what arms. What goes around and, comes and around. It's like, oh. But 
but yeah, the um, I'll say the weirdest aspect of this one is its head, actually. I mean, the four-fingered thing as well has been done on several occasions. I think it's just um, harkening back to old megalosaur reconstructions. But yeah, the head gives it does give it the appearance of this kind of mythical dragon. I'm, I'm not sure why he... It's, it looks like a kind of oriental dragon thing going on, like Chinese dragon. It's, <laughs> it's got, it has a sort of mammalian brow thing going on, which is peculiar. Um, it, and it's unusual because I, none of his other theropods really look like that. Yeah, the, the placement of the eyes too is really odd. Yeah, the teeth actually extend under the orbit, which is a very, um, excuse my language, but basal trait in <laughs> theropod dinosaurs. Um, like going back to sort of Dilophosaurus um, has that, but then no Tetanurin, as far as I'm aware, has teeth that ex- extend under the orbit like that. So again, it's, I guess it, Spinosaurus is an excuse to be weird. Um, and it's, he's made it really skinny too. Have you seen that? Yeah. It's got like uh, his hips are sort of sticking out and it's got these ribs. Um, it's unusually skinny for this book. Most of his dinosaurs aren't yeah, he's really... Not skin- um, he's not a shrink wrapper. No, not at all. Though most of them, as I said, are muscular. In fairness, even this Spinosaurus isn't shrink wrapped, uh, in in spite of the fact that it does look lithe. And and curiously enough, again, it comes back to this um, what you were saying earlier, Mark, about you know the worm turning. Um, not only is it low slung and uh, shorter limbed, but this this thinner barreled appearance um, is here again. Yeah, and and it's you know for all we know what we understand Spinosaurus to be right now. Um, which is just a strange coincidence, I suppose. But but there it is. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, um, it's always been sort of described as being more slender, always in a rather vague way, of course, but more slender than something like a tyrannosaur um, because it's always described as being long but kind of slim. So I think that's that's been known for a long time, maybe not as definitively as we know now. Um, but, yeah. But, of course, they were all working off of a specimen that doesn't exist, Right. Because the first Spinosaurus was destroyed. Yeah, it got blown to bits. <laughs> yeah. That was the end of that. Um, so only photographs of, and sort of and drawings of it remained. Um, which, yeah, yeah, shame. Uh, <laughs> so at least, at least we've got a bit more of it now to go on. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the cover, by the way, is great. I like the, uh, the... Well, it's very striking because you have these... Obviously, the Brachiosaurs coming up, which look completely unlike anything we've got alive today. And they're fantastically painted. I love the... Um, the shading on and everything on there, they're the very atmospheric. And then you've got these two small birds flying in, just, just to give you this idea of the size of these things. Because um, just, just look at the size of their heads alone, they're massive, and you've got them uh, craning up above the trees. So it's a very, very striking image. I think it makes a great cover. And it's not a theropod. Yeah, uh, very so happy with that's that. uh, always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the uh, team must be happy about them not being a theropod. G- going back to Going back to theropods, let's talk about page 66, ah, yes. where we find a very peculiar, uh, a very peculiar restoration of Compsognathus. With flippers. A small theropod with flipper-like hands. That's kind of a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Has anybody else ever explored this idea, do you know? It's, uh, yeah, I think it was, a, was around for a quite a short space of time, I think. It was based on a misinterpretation of a fossil basically um of, of compsognathus that appeared to have flipper hands but in reality didn't um so but I, I do like the fact that you've got the weird one next to the normal one and uh and a king crab yes <laughs> crab. Yeah, i have two versions and then the page next to it has the uh, ornithalestes grabbing the bird 
Yeah, it's basically just Charles Knight. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry, but it is. I do want I do want to remark on on the um, the Archaeopteryx's plumage, by the way, which I think is yes, is and spectacular. Yeah. the the, um, the color scheme on the Ornithelestes as well is so beautiful. Yes. Yes, um, and also on the opposite page, the uh, Pterodactylus, which again is is quite amusingly retro by um, you know, from a modern point of view because it's just the appearance of it. It looks more like a kind of uh, non pterodactyloid almost. That over the short tail, but yeah, the, the, the spots and everything on that are wonderful, and, and it is fuzzy. It's fuzzy. It's worth noting that. Um, it's quite a nice, quite a nice restoration. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic artist. Yep, it's a fantastic. I agree, agree. Yes, indeed. I actually want to talk about first of all. There's some really nice birds on page seventy-five. It's like a cormorant thing, uh, but also the stegosaurus. Ah, yes, stegosaurus with the flapping uh, plates. Well. Not flapping, but just restored flat, because that's what Halstead thought was restored flat. correct. Yeah. He does, again, Halstead um, being fairly reasonably progressive at the time, he's, he's not um, you know crazy backer jumping up and down um, bearded madness. But um, he is. He does say, well, it's, it's limbs would have been upright, his head would have been held well, well clear of the ground. But at the same time, yeah, his plates would have been flat, because those upright plates don't make any sense. <laughs> they should be yeah. they should be flat it's a curious yeah. curious thought because um it wouldn't have a great deal of anchor point would it for for those plates to lie in that way um, you know just at the most fundamental um uh, level i guess i don't think he was basing himself off of anatomy uh, as much as just what he thought was common sense what he says in the book if well if they were upright there wouldn't have been any use in mm. protecting the animal, so they would have been flat. Stands to reason, right? Yeah. And I think that was the logic that he was yeah. using. And if you look at um, what you're talking about just now about the anchor points, if you look at Cassetti's illustration, actually he does sort of uh, have these bumps where um, it almost looks like the two plates on either side, because they're symmetrical, they're depicted as being symmetrical either side, um, are sort of joined together and stuck on the top like a bow. Um, you know, like a little bow on a present, because um, it's got this. Because, as you say, because Eddie's logically thinking, well, it needs an anchor point in the flesh, it so needs something to hold on. To. Yeah, so yeah, there, so there it is. Which, yeah, makes sense in the context of the reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, once again, yeah. testament to the illustrator's art. Yeah, so. exactly. We can hardly blame him for uh, depicting it that way, given that that's what Halstead specified. So, yes. Yeah. I have very little else to say um, uh, to add to what you've already mentioned in terms of the reflection of the knowledge at the time, um, which, I com which I completely agree with. But all I wanted to say was that it, the accuracy aside, just in terms of there being animals, um, I think uh, this is reflected beautifully in all the illustrations um, because um, without our, our knowledge now of what they uh, are supposed to look like, I think they all look like convincing animals as we understood them um, and just uh, just in terms of the, the way an animal might move and react I mean just for instance in the illustration of the pachycephalosaurs on page 89 um, and again we we think that pachycephalosaurs probably didn't clash their heads together yeah. but um, I thought I thought there was one study just, that established um, they might have actually done that well, after all um, but maybe it goes back and forth. Well, all right. But but that aside, um, I think what, what I was going to point out was that the impact that the Pachycephalosaur on the right is taking from the clashing of the head, it's it, it, it being lifted clear of the ground. I mean, just, just little things like that. The the um, 
biomecha biomechanical way that animals work. Um, I think they just look beautiful in this. Um, well, that's, that's all I was going yeah, to add, really. Excellent point, um, actually. Um, and the one, even the one on the left as well, um, running at absolute full pelt with the leg stretched out, the way the, the muscles are working there. As you said, yeah. the, the momentum. Um, I mean, that's that those legs are very... Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's no dullard, slow-moving dinosaur, is it? <laughs> that's, and the tail stretched right out. Mm, no, um, Yeah, very, very dynamic. Yeah, and the illustrations are beautifully uh, evocative. They really create worlds that you can sort of get lost in. Um, you know, considering that Giovanni Caselli, he, he didn't necessarily have uh, a background in, you know, paleo art or natural history. His background was in anthropology, of all things, but he just happened to be a decent artist. But uh, I think he's really succeeded into making something really beautiful. And uh, I think this book has done a very good job in making me appreciate vintage uh, dinosaur art, vintage paleo art, for what it is, uh, other than just being uh, an, as up-to-date and as scientifically accurate as possible reconstruction of the past. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, well done. Um, I feel the same way. I mean, I've, I've really appreciated picking it up again in the last few days to have a look through and browse it and have gained a newfound appreciation for it. I mean, I already obviously liked it. It was on my shelf with all my favourites on, <laughs> on my bookshelf. But um, yeah, I've, I've really gained a, a whole new appreciation for it, having looked through it again in the last few days. It's, it's a really good book. Yes. Now, beautiful book. Okay. Moving on, uh, we've got a paleo artist interview with uh, none other than our good friend Joshua Knupe. Joshua Knupe is one of the most prolific paleo artists working today. He's based in uh, Germany. He produces many, many, many new artworks on a weekly basis, really. So he's very productive, just, just images, images, images. His uh, paleo stream on Twitch is very popular. He's on YouTube, he's on DeviantArt, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. Uh, he's already published two paleo stream books. And now his first big publication is out. It's a graphic novel about Europasaurus. Now Europasaurus, if you don't know, is a sauropod dinosaur from Jurassic Germany. And it's a dwarf sauropod. It's only the size of an elephant. So uh, yeah, it's a dinky, uh, dinky little thing. <laughs> um, I sat down with Joshua to talk about the book, about his background and his future plans. Okay, everybody. Welcome to the show, Joshua Knupe. How are you? I'm fine. I'm, um, well, uh, Tetsucon just happened, and yesterday I was still a little bit exhausted, but uh, today it's it's all good again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I heard it went on until uh, yesterday uh, afternoon or something like that. Yeah, I think four or five people were still busy doing lunchtime. <laughs> Okay, well, those so, crazy kids. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea how they did it, but they did. Okay, uh, Joshua, we're here to talk about your new book. Uh, yes. Europasaurus. I'm, uh, I'm holding it now. It looks uh, absolutely beautiful. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. So, uh, let's talk about the book. Could you, uh, in your own words, tell the people what it is and what they can expect if they get it? Um, it is... Mostly a graphic novel, so it's uh, several um, stories 
uh, told in a 90% graphical way. There's a little bit of text in there too, uh, but yeah. it's it's mostly pictures that uh, will will tell you stories about the life, death, and uh, other things about uh, Europasaurus and its contemporaries. Um, beyond that, we have a scientific section in which we explain the things you have witnessed while reading the graphic t- part. Uh, and uh, yeah. Okay, great. How did you get involved with this project? How long have you been talking about this? Uh, how did you uh, How did you get the idea? Um, if we go way back, then I have to start in 2014, because that year we had a SVP meeting, as a as a, me- as a uh, annual meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology in Berlin, and I was like, oh snap, I have to go there. It might be the only time in my life <laughs> that it will actually <laughs> stop in Germany. And uh, I, I was there for, I think, two days. Unfortunately, it wasn't... I, I had not enough time for, for all four days. Uh, but I I met there quite a few of people. Uh, among other things, um, Niels Knirchke, who is a scientific... Um, uh, head of the Dinosaur Park Mönchehagen and uh, also Oliver Wings was there who is a, a leader of the Europasaurus project the scientific project that um, basically made this, this book project possible right and he became the co-author of this book exactly and uh, or, or yeah. he, he initiated everything uh, and and we, we stayed in contact and I produced some um, press release artwork uh, for the Europasaurus project, for example, for, for when Knötschgesurus, named after Niels, um, was, uh, was described. Um, or when uh, there was a, a paper on uh, tracks, large theropod tracks that were found in the Langberg Quarry where Europasaurus also right. was found. And I produced yeah. some stuff for that too, and um, so I I once had the idea. Okay, what what about we we produce a little book that's kind of like like a like a field guide, a little book, like like these little little books you get uh, to uh, identify birds and everything. Uh, right. Yeah. That that was my initial idea, um, inspired in part by Matthew Martinik's um, books on Mesozoic birds. Yes. And and his Solnhofen uh, book, um, and I told that Niels, yeah, and um, he was like, ah, oh, yeah, not not bad, but uh, I'm not sure that would work. And months later, I get an um, email from him, uh, and he says, oh, Oliver, Oliver Wings would like to uh, work on a on a on a book about the graphic uh, about the Langberg query and Europasaurus. Um, but it would be something different than what you had in mind. And so we basically met in the middle and it became a, a graphic novel. Um, I think two or three months later, we realized, okay, nobody, uh, no one of us had ever really worked with with storytelling or every, anything. So we got um, uh, Henning Ahlers on board, who is an art director. He worked on films, graphic novels and, and other visual media. Right. And um so we 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 as a trio came together and began working on this and we created our f- uh, first sample uh, chapter which is partly still in the book actually. 
um, and we sent that off to the Volkswagen Foundation okay. um, to ask for funding. And then we actually got the funding and then we started actually working on it. Okay, that's so cool. Well, uh, I imagine the book really grew in scope over time. Because oh, yeah. when I'm reading it, I was really um, impressed by just how big it is, how much art is in there, and just how many animals you managed to get in there. You really created um, an environment, an ecosystem that feels really alive with all these different kinds of animals. It's not just the sauropods, it's uh, tons of mammals and turtles and crocodilians and... Um, pterosaurs and fish and lots of uh, predatory dinosaurs. Are all these found in the uh, Europasaurus quarry? Um, most of them. When you have a look at the very end of the book, at, at the very first page of the book, there, there are uh, size charts that show the larger and smaller animals that were actually found there. Um, beyond there, we, we borrowed a few animals from other, and, and especially plants, from other localities that were close by and from the same... Uh, from the same time frame. Right, like, like the Torvosaurus, perhaps? The Torvosaurus actually is known from the quarry. Not Torvosaurus itself. Uh, it's, that would be too ambitious to to say it's this genus, but the, the large yeah. tracks I mentioned earlier and a few teeth we have um, okay. point to, to the existence of these large Torvosaurian megalosaurs uh, in that area. And um, we included them also because there is a paper um, uh, on the description of the V and Venator, also a large torvosaur from Germany, but from the Middle Jurassic, right. that points out that apparently torvosaurs um, liked these coastal areas. They were more successful, apparently, in, in, in these wet environments, you might say. And that's why we thought it would be, would be good to include it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And beyond that, we we included. Um, I think the most animals we took from from elsewhere were were insects. Right. From from Sonhofen, for example, uh, like like in in that one double page that uh, shows a juvenile Europasaurus striding through a forest of large horse tails. Right. These yeah. large um, large grasshoppers you see in there with 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 a length of I think. 16 centimeters really big insects wow we don't have them from the quarry but we have uh quite a few examples from Solenhofen, uh and that's the the, the same time uh europasaurus existed um yeah also for the flora uh there are only here and there conifers right uh, found in the quarry because they they are the most hardy plants that would actually survive the fossilization there. It's the fossilization isn't very good for for softer tissue. Yeah. Um. But there is a relatively close by a locality from the same time that uh, has lots of plants, and so we borrowed a lot from there. Also a little bit from the Morrison Formation. Uh. Also, uh, I, I think I took a lungfish from the Morrison Formation. Right. Uh, to to have something for the fresh water because most fishes we found at the quarry are the, uh, marine. So, yes, yeah. of course, because 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 it was an island, wasn't it? Yeah, it was most likely yeah. an island. Um, it's we 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 try to reconstruct the the environment also in in terms of maps, so the paleogeography as uh, as good as we can. I think I I spent several weeks on the huge um, Europe map that is in the book. Wow. Um, 
and I just now uh, noticed that there might be one or two little errors in there. <laughs> so, so for the second edition, these will be erased if we ever get one. But uh, yeah, it, it it was a lot of work that that went into that. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So um, you had to come up with all these uh, all these looks for all these animals, all these different color schemes, yeah. um, all these different. Uh, you know the soft tissue as well which doesn't really keep uh, in fossilization can you tell us a little little something about that a little something about the the creative process of filling in uh, the known unknowns as it were oh yeah oh sure um it was uh, of course there's a lot of uh, creative license involved just looking for stuff that looks cool <laughs> at the end of the day yeah, sure. but also of course looking uh, for for color schemes and soft tissue that uh, is is uh, appears at least to be plausible. Um, right. It was relatively easy, for example, for our mammals because mammals don't really see a lot of colors usually, and so we went yeah. for for brown, black, white, uh, with with a little bit more yellow in here, a little bit more reddish in there. Um, that was relatively easy, but then um, with the dinosaurs, we we in in some cases we we really um thought a lot about that i think the longest we thought about this was in europasaurus itself and the torvosaur right um with europasaurus we we went for this very light light brown and and um yellowish dark green in uh, and these these stripes at the at the necks and and the black uh throat sack and everything that that formed out of several sketches that I made. So I, I made a rough, rough uh, a pencil sketch of Europasaurus, scanned that, and um, colored it, uh, printed it out, and colored several versions of that. And then we took the most interesting parts and puzzled them together into something that could uh, could be believable. Yeah, d definitely. They're definitely not, uh, you know, the the boring grey elephant-like sauropods that you used to see. Yeah, that that was really important to us that we would have Europasaurus to have a to have give it a look that could turn out over the years to be a kind of an iconic design. Right. Yeah. Uh, similar like like uh, the red-headed T-Rex or or Stegosaurus with uh, green body and red plates, something like that. Yeah. So um, Allosaurus with the red horns. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Do do I see? Uh, did you put some uh, some sexual dimorphism into the coloration? Absolutely. Because I see some of the adult animals have some some red yeah. by the eyes yeah. and by the neck. Yeah. So so the the males have this uh, this yellowish uh, to uh, up to to orangey stripe behind the eyes, while the the females have this gray area at the upper part of the neck. Um, this is uh, also the the males are actually quite a bit larger. It doesn't really come across in all pictures, um, but because I not always thought of, of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the scientific part of the book, you can see in the uh, in the part about uh, Europasaurus uh, wool family together and the differences between um, males and females there. And these differences are are not just based on what we would like to show in the story, but actually fossil material. Because there are two distinct morphs we see in the um, in the fossil material: a large one and a smaller one, both adults, 
and nothing really in between. Right. Uh, but they are all come from the same uh, strat stratigraphic layers um, and were found together with juveniles and even babies. So, um, and when when you actually put all, for example, all limb bones together, you, you get a certain curve there, which is very... Uh, typical for actual natural populations. Yes. So the size distribution within our fossils seems to indicate that what we found there is a complete uh, herd of at least 21 specimens. Yeah. And the most likely uh, distribution for, for these smaller and bigger morphs is that these actually uh, are male and female. And the most likely it, uh, explanation for, for the larger um, animals is that these are, are the males based on comparisons with modern day animals. That's so cool. It's a sort of like Europasaurus is kind of unique like that, isn't it? Because yes. you've, you've got all these different specimens with all these different sizes. Yeah. It's, it's not really published yet uh, on this, mostly because this, it, it looks most likely like this, but w actually we need more um, more work has to be done on the taphonomy of of these animals right. uh, because when when you go into the the quarry there you can't just uh, pick up rocks and look for fossils it's it's more like you have to wait a few weeks or months until they are blasting there again they they don't go in there with okay. heavy machinery they just put dynamite into the wall and then blast it off huge chunks of uh, of 20 meter high walls and so wow. a huge pile of rubble is there and so it's it's sometimes very difficult to determine, okay, where did these fossils came out of the wall? Um, that's why that's not really, really out there yet. Uh, but it's it's uh, at least the explanation we, we went for in the book. Yeah, And unfortunately, this uh, information also didn't make it into the book, not only because it's not, not published really yet, but also um, because we ran out of, of space and time. <laughs> Yeah, I understand. Yeah. But you know, uh, if you uh, if you look for those little details, you can sort of pick them up like little Easter eggs. I ki I quite enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. We 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 try. I at at least try to really pack the the pictures with as many details as possible. Also, some stuffs you might uh, only notice uh, weeks or even years later. Yeah, there are a few details I even haven't forgotten about that I may, uh, put them in there. <laughs> All those little details. So, yeah. uh, Joshua, let's talk a little bit about your uh, about your influence, the 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 artists, the art, the stuff, the media that influenced yeah. you as an artist, and specifically the things that influenced you while you were uh, writing, while you were I illustrating the book. Because when I read it, I couldn't help but think of things like uh, walking with dinosaurs, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, Ab absolutely. I I was envisioning the book really as a static static documentary you might say right yeah yeah so um walking with dinosaurs certainly has still up to this day has a huge influence on me oh absolutely the whole way they they work with storytelling and and everything within this as uh, the medium of the documentary um beyond that of course um douglas henderson oh yeah definitely when, when you look for it you find some some influence there uh, but also, actually, artists like Caspar uh, David Friedrich, who is not a paleo artist. So uh, uh, the way he 
builds up landscapes and he works with with light and everything was quite a bit of uh, inspiration for me also turner um uh, then uh, james gurney of course oh, yeah. who, who is yeah. a master of of light and color um and whose books were very helpful uh in a way in 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 many uh, instances uh, a little bit of mark witten is in there yeah uh, and of course all yesterday's um and the wolf philosophy behind it uh, played a huge role for me can you give me an example of uh, an instance where you really thought in that all yesterday's mindset okay we're going to uh, we're going to do some informed speculation here we're going to fill in some blanks that we don't know yeah for, for example the the throat sacks on on the europasaurus were were something yeah. Where uh, I was like, okay, we have no really evidence for this, but I, I really want to include this detail. Um, also, with with this striking contrast between the white neck and the, the black throat there. Um, yeah. Uh, also, just just some parts of the behavior. So when you go through the book, there isn't that much uh, action going on. Right. Um, I tried really between action parts. I tried really to get as many calm scenes in as possible, to to uh, not um, to to make the story feel not rushed or um, right. overburdened with uh, with action scenes. What what is usually for me at least a problem with with many dinosaur media. You 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 rush from from action scene to action scene. And, yeah, and, and it's so, all violence all the time. Yeah, yeah, violence, uh, violence uh, left and right, uh, and so you right. you have of course um, cases of predation in there, and um, tragedies and everything uh, because you also want of course some emotional, um, uh, emotional moments in there. Yeah, um, absolutely. When uh, when the tragic thing happens, and I'm not going to spoil it. The tragic thing, yeah. You you do feel it, yeah. <laughs> Buy the book to find out more. <laughs> Buy the book to find out more, people. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Oh, by the way, this tragic thing is actually the most likely explanation for why we find these things how they have been found. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking more about your influence, what are the things that uh, when you were growing up? Because you know we're about the same age. What were the what were the books that you were reading when you were a kid? The things that you were seeing that really made you want to be a paleo artist for a living. Um, really, doing paleo art for a living came relatively late. To me, I have to say, mostly because I was relatively late to the internet. Um, I think I was sixteen when I really became active online, and when I came across the term paleo artist at all. Right. Which actually—it's uh, quite. I, I think it's quite interesting that uh, how one word suddenly can turn your, your complete perception of something. Uh, like when I first heard the term paleoartist and what it means, I was, was like a door was open for me and, whoa, there are people who are only doing this. Damn. Wow. This is so cool. Um, but I, I was always uh, drawing or painting dinosaurs since I'm, I'm, I'm four, I think. Right. And first day in kindergarten, I knew nobody there, so... What should I do? Oh, give me, give me my my crayons and and my paper, and I had uh, <laughs> uh, something to do for days. Uh, that's that's how I started. Um, and and 
my interest for dinosaurs and my interest for art basically um, always feed on each other. So so there was always coming some motivate when I was less motivated in art than some uh, some new dinosaur book or some new discovery always motivated me to pick up the pencil again. Uh, and when I wasn't so so hot on dinosaurs, sometimes uh, drawing mm-hmm. them always brought me back into into the mood. Um, yeah, books I I collected back then. I think up to this day, one of the most influential one is is a German um, edition of a book by Joseph Wallace. It's the only book. I think you could get back then that really had uh, the the pictures of the of the big masters of paleo art of the dinosaur renaissance in it. Right. Everything else was basically only copying uh, Gregory S. Paul and Mark Hallett and everything. Oh yeah, but definitely. But here I first for the first time came across um, Douglas Henderson and and uh, GSP and uh, all these these guys. And uh, it it really blew me away, and was also the only book really that tried back then to bridge the the usual children's literature you get uh, and and the the scientific literature. So it had discussions about um, uh, warm blooded versus versus cold blooded and the origin of birds and everything. All this stuff that was usually skipped by by the children's book because it was deemed to be too uh, too complicated right so um joshua could you uh give us some uh, some idea of what the future might hold for you um it's a little bit unclear right now i'm i'm kind of in in between two big projects basically so the europasaurus just ended but there's still a little bit of stuff to do there um right uh, especially in in terms of marketing and everything so uh, stuff like this basically uh, i i'm i'm quite involved in that um and i just uh ended three projects for for three museums um and now there's another potential commission on my table but there's a say it's it's still um ongoing if if uh, my my prices are too high for the guys or not hmm. um well he's worth it and then we are already thinking about maybe bringing out another graphic novel which of course depends if we can get uh funding again okay well that's a tantalizing uh, possibility yeah a follow-up to the europa source yeah. it, it wouldn't be on europa source I have to say it would be on another locality from the eel scene, um, but it would have a very similar concept. To so, would it also be uh, would it also be a quarry in Germany then, uh, close to where you live? Not close to where I live, but uh, it would okay. also be in Germany. Yeah. Right. Have you ever been to the Europasaurus quarry, by the way? Unfortunately, not. I I have tons of papers on everything from there, but so far I didn't really have the opportunity to go there. Uh, I mean, especially this year, it was of course, basically yeah. impossible to go go there anyway. And and before that, I was usually too much involved with painting the animals from the quarry than actually going there. So, well, who knows? But but I know huge chunks of the fossil material coming from there, 
because I was a few time at the Dinosaur Park Munchehagen and in their collection, uh, they have uh, most of the macro fossils. Most of the micro fossils are in, in Hanover in the collection, uh, like the, mm -hmm. the mammal teeth and everything, they, they go there. Uh, but I, I know most of the Europosaurus bones and crocodile stuff and uh, fish scales or personally. It was um, my way to still have a have a personal connection to that material. Although I have never seen how it came out of the wall. So, Joshua, thank you yeah. very much for your time. No problem. The uh, book is out now. It's called Europasaurus Life on Jurassic Islands. It's by Oliver Wings and Joshua Knupe. Joshua, would you mind telling us where we can get this book? Um, in the moment, the best way to order is if you go to the website of our publisher, that is a uh, um, uh, file uh, verlag. Um, it's uh, um, suited in, in Munich, and they are known for, for the high-quality print of paleontology and geology-related um, books. You might have heard of the Las Hoyas book or the two big books they brought out about um, Solenhofen. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just below 20 euro in the moment. Um, but there are also a few other online shops where, where you can get it. But but because of cor the coronavirus, um, it was a little bit difficult uh, to get the books out to these, to these other um, uh, distributors in the moment. So uh, that's still really the best uh, place to, especially internationally, uh, to, right. to get the book. So that's file, P-F-E-I-L? Yeah. All right. Well, look out uh, for the website of file and uh, get yourself a copy of Europasaurus. It's an absolutely gorgeous book. Joshua, thank you very much. No problem. Well, um, before I sign off for this edition, I would just like to personally thank our blogmaster, David Orr, for sanctioning this whole podcast enterprise. Uh, I would like to thank our friend, Hussein Kishi, for technical advice and for being, if I recall correctly, among the first last year to suggest the project. I want to thank my co-hosts, Mark and Niels, uh, Niels especially, for uh, finally galvanizing us into this recording action and for overseeing the process and of course for your editing work and i want yeah, to yeah thank thanks Niels for giving us a kick up the backside yes <laughs> and and finally obviously i would like to thank our listeners who i very much hope will be back for more in future god help them. thank you very much yeah <laughs> thank you very much for that uh thank you all uh, for potting with me it's uh, been a pleasure thank you okay and uh hopefully we'll uh, see each other next time and uh, record another one uh, next time yeah, catch you later. Hopefully it'll be with fewer hitches and etc. Naturally. Naturally. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. And uh, I'll always go rambling on on a tangent, so it's, it's yeah. inevitable. Okay. Thank you for listening. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Oh. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Our blog can be found at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon.